American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Good evening. My name is Josh Brown, and I'm Executive Director of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning and a member of the history faculty here at the Graduate Center. I'm pleased to welcome you this evening to the second program in a series of three public panels called Still Hazy After All These Years, marking the sesquicentennial of the start of the American Civil War. Now, it's a truism that 150 years after its start, the Civil War is still being fought, if for the most part without live ammunition. Tonight's panel is entitled The Great Divide, with a question mark, Civil War Myths and Misinformation, and we have with us a panel of distinguished historians and educators that will consider some of the many ways the history of America's greatest crisis has been excluded, overlooked, misinterpreted, and distorted in the name of commemoration and memory and, alas, learning. Our second speaker will be Scott Reynolds Nelson, who is the, is it legume? Legum. Legum, okay. Not, not the vegetable. Not the vegetable. Legum. The Legum Professor of History at the College of William and Mary. Scott received his PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and his publications include Iron Confederacies, Southern Railways, Clan Violence and Reconstruction, and Steel Driving Man, John Henry, The Untold Story of an American Legend, which won, among many honors, the Organization of American Historians Merrill Curdy Award for Best Book on U.S. History and Culture. He also is co-author with Carol Sheriff of A People at War, Civilians and Soldiers in America's Civil War, and co-author with Mark Aronson of the multi-prized Ain't Nothing But a Man, My Quest to Find the Real John Henry. Scott's forthcoming book is an all-too-relevant study entitled Crash, An Uncommon History of America's Financial Panics. I'm going to start with, uh, this is, this is our, our book here, but I'm going to start with this image. Uh, they're, they're, I'm going to go through kind of three images and sort of talk about um, the kind of popular images of the war. One of them, uh, when you think of the Republican Party, this is probably who you ordinarily think of, and there's something to that. Lincoln was an interesting figurehead. He didn't oppose slavery, and he opposed its westward expansion. He supported railroads to the west, and his firm position was that there would be no slavery in the western territories. Lincoln's election to the presidency caused the lower states, south states of South Carolina, Alabama, and Mississippi to secede. But he's not that particularly threatening looking man. He doesn't seem to do or say anything that's directly threatening to slaveholders. To understand why uh, some white southerners hated him, we have to look at this picture. Um, I brought one pop with me. Uh, this oh, sorry. the kepi or the sort of foraging hat. I'm, I've never been a reenactor, but just to kind of give you a sense of what the cap <laughs> looks why. like. You can see why, right? I, I'm not, I make a pretty uh, this, this sort of Swedish regiment, uh, I guess. Um, it's these folks who paraded around the streets of New York, Philadelphia, and even Burlington, Vermont. These wide awake clubs, as they were called, were formed to attract young men into the Republican Party, even men who couldn't vote. They formed during the heated conflict over the election of 1860. The wide awakes dressed as soldiers with the peaked cap called a kepi that recalled French military uniforms. The cap and the small cape were both black, made of enameled cloth that reflected the light from the lanterns that wide awakes carried, as you can see here in this procession. Sights of thousands of wide awakes walking in torchlight and lantern processions throughout northern cities and towns was arresting. 
Wide Awakes declared that a slave power was bent on controlling the presidency, that they had a duty to defend the president. They looked exactly like an army, and white Southerners in newspapers throughout the South called them a black Republican army. Once this army was organized, according to Jefferson Davis, it would march into the South to abolish slavery and generate slave rebellions that would kill tens of thousands of white Southerners. To prevent this army from invading, according to some of the Southern Democrats, <coughs> Southerners needed to join into militias that would prevent them from coming down. Now, this may seem a bit outlandish uh, to you, but there are really some important precedents. It's worth kind of thinking back to the 19th century. First of all, committees of safety, of course, have been founded uh, during the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Haitian Revolution. And these semi-organized bands had gone on to form the basis of a revolutionary army. Uh, secondly, filibusters. Uh, these are groups of uh, folks who uh, are, are traveling around as kind of volunteer armies slash governments. Um, political and military bands arrived to announce themselves as liberators in places that were uh, further west uh, or outside of the U.S. boundaries, and then form a government and found a republic. And this is, in fact, how we get Florida as a state uh, effectively in the 18-teens. Uh, this is how we get Texas in the 1830s. Again, these, these ba bands that arrive, they plant a flag, they say they're prepared to, um, this is of course California, the bear flag republic too. Again, you have a, this, this military uh, uh, slash political organization that represents the people, calls up a republic and, and changes uh, the so social structure. Now, Texas, you know about, I'm sure, from the Republic of Texas in 35 and 36, but it's worth remembering uh, that there were also two other failed attempts at um, revolutions in 1837, uh, one in Montreal and one in Toronto. And uh, these, the, the, uh, um, the Mackenzie and the Papineau uh, revolts were uh, initially Canadian revolts against uh, British power, but they were called on uh, large numbers of American uh, kind of volunteers who traveled to these places and, uh, and tried to kind of rile up and, and create a new government in Toronto and, uh, and Montreal. Both of them were unsuccessful, although it's, it's funny in the Spanish Civil War in 1925, the, uh, when Canadians sent uh, folks over, they called uh, themselves the Pap-Mac Brigade, uh, recalling Papineau and uh, Mackenzie in 1837. But so this idea of groups of kind of soldiers that are going to create an army and rebuild a government uh, is, is, a, is a kind of threatening thing. And so the wide awake, the wide awake uh, political organization in the Republican Party is worth thinking about the Republican Party at the time as something like, as, as something as, as that planters, slave owners saw as a kind of black Republican army, as a, an army that would arm uh, slaves. Now this, the, the final um, case of course is John Brown. John Brown came to Harper's Ferry with a constitution for a new state that would be founded at Harper's Ferry that would attract former slaves and call on slave revolts elsewhere. So the idea of a kind of Republican army was something that called on the kind of, and, and for white Southerners anyways, called on this sort of image of this, this small army that would move into the South, cause slave revolts, and end slavery in the South forcefully. So that's, that's the kind, it's worth kind of thinking about uh, this. I'm, this is not in any sense a justification of white Southerners, but that's part of the threat I think, that they saw in the Republican Party in 1860, and why it was so important for them that Lincoln could not be inaugurated president, because these wide awakes, as they call them, uh, as they call themselves, uh, were here. It's difficult to recapture that sense of anxiety about a new Republican Party that seemed to be a paramilitary party, one that attracted young men, brandished weapons, and seemed dedicated to ending slavery by force. But that's pr precisely what some Southerners saw, white Southerners, when they saw the Republicans' wide awake clubs.
The other image that's a familiar one for the war is this one of soldiers fighting. And we think of the daring charges, and many of you could tell, um, you know, I'm sure, about Pickett's Charge, the Bloody Angle, Devil's Lane, the Hornet's Nest, or Lookout Point in Chattanooga. And these battles are, of course, important because thousands have been dying in these affrays. Soldiers recalled these conflicts decades later. Uh, many, many soldiers on both sides died. But it's worth recalling that twice as many soldiers died of disease as died of bullets, and that much of their time was spent in camp, bored out of their minds, drinking coffee, and eating pies. This is... Um, the next image. The Suitler, this is the Suitler shop. Uh, pies, well, yes, soldiers provided, proved a captive market for the delicacies provided by the man under the tent called the Suitler. Uh, S-U-T-L-E-R, sometimes pronounced Suttler. He prepared pies and ginger cakes. He sold beer and sometimes whiskey, and he was assigned to a regiment, putting him in the position of offering food to soldiers on loan with low monthly interest rate of, say, 15 to 20 percent. Uh, the sutler could take advantage, uh, and, and the sutler's job was kind of more uh, valuable than, than regimental commander in, in some sense. If, uh, the sutler, sutler could take advantage of a revolution in canning technology that emerged just as the war took place. A man named Gail Borden had perfected a method of storing milk in cans by boiling it for four hours, then capping it in a submerged vessel. It became Borden's evaporated and condensed milk. When his patent expired, it expired in 1861. Lots of entrepreneurial merchants set up canning factories all over the North, especially in Chicago and southern Indiana, but also in Boston, Philadelphia, and Maine, where they canned local products. At a Suitler's tent, you could buy canned ham, canned beef, canned blueberries, even canned lobster. For homesick soldiers stuck in the South, Union soldiers, food from back home allowed them to feel briefly transported back to their homes. It was packaged nostalgia. And to ensure that the goods were not spoiled, the merchants put their names on the tin so you could return it and get another tin that wasn't spoiled. The names may be familiar to you. Borden's milk, Van Camp's beans, Swift pork sausages, armor beef. These little cans, mostly tin with solder on the top, lots of lead solder, um, lovely, had other advantages uh, as well. For Swift and armor, it allowed them to cut up and use more of the pig and cow, adding salt and sugar to cover up the flavor of intestines or ears, which many uh, soldiers uh, previously wouldn't have eaten. They called it the Irish parts of uh, an animal. And that lead also gave that delicious, uh, sweet uh, flavor. So you can just imagine, you know, soldiers in camp, their, their arteries hardening as they... Um, uh, th this is actually the beginnings of, uh, with, with this sort of packaged beef, where, where people create this product that's supposedly uh, from the city of Hamburg called the Hamburger. Uh, which is, uh, becomes this very popular uh, uh, food among, among Union soldiers. Pre-war factories only used about half a pig, leaving backbone, shoulders, skull, and lard all to be dumped in nearby streams. But Swift and Armour slaughterhouses could keep about half of the weight of the pig, leaving backbone, shoulders, skull, and lard. Uh, sorry, uh, Armour and Swift used closer to 90% of the animal, or as Upton Sinclair later put it, everything but the squeal. Soldiers apparently bought and swallowed without thinking twice. Armor and Swift factories became efficient assembly lines, or disassembly lines, uh, I guess, uh, producing packaged sausages and bologna that could be shipped over long distances, stored for weeks, and then sold to soldiers and sailors. Meanwhile, factories near Armor and Swift plants could, use, could sell surplus bones for glue, and surplus bristles and hair found their way to upholsters and brush manufacturers. Wartime shortages and new manufacturing methods assure that no part of an animal was wasted as it was cut up and shipped, bound for the bellies of homesick soldiers. 
at least those with money to spend. This is really the beginnings of a um, modern international packaged food distribution, which is going to be the kind of basis of really modern uh, industrialization. We tend to think of the iron industry, the steel industry. The big, one of the biggest American exports uh, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s are these pack, canned and packaged foods, branded foods. Now, our image of the reunion after the war is something like this. Northerners and Southerners finally settling their differences. Uh, Republican newspaperman Horace Greeley put up the bail for Jefferson Davis when he was tried at the end of the war. It's true that there were very few post-war executions for war crimes. Greeley wrote in 1871, as he was running for president, the masses of our countrymen, north and south, are eager to clasp hands across the bloody chasm which has so long divided them. But it's worth returning to some of the issues of the war. Remember that Lincoln was a strong proponent of railways to the west, railways that would cross through territories without slavery. And as the war was going on, Lincoln made it possible for the four men who helped form the Republican Party in California, Huntington, Stanford, uh, Hopkins, and Crocker, to act as directors of a federally financed railroad, the Central Pacific. Many at the time saw this railroad as a boondoggle, a political payback for cronies. The construction company, in fact, for the Central Pacific, bought supplies uh, from was a dummy company founded by the four, the big four. They charged themselves uh, for the U.S. finance construction, uh, roughly 1,000%. Um, and they borrowed uh, something like 2 to $3 million from the federal government, which they never paid back. Now, luckily, we live in an age where that kind of political corruption is impossible, but uh, <laughs> then it was, it was fairly uh, common. Uh, in any event, the big chasm that railroads faced, in fact, was the Sierra Nevada mountains and their deep, deep valleys. It's worth it. Why, you know, why build a railroad during the war? Well, the question is, the U.S., uh, the, the federal, um, the, the, you know, there's gold in California, and that's, that's uh, part of it. Uh, the Confederacy is also establishing territories in California and elsewhere. Part of what the Union is trying to do in its relationship to Europe is to demonstrate that it has territorial integrity that it can connect from sea to sea, that doesn't have to kind of go around the isthmus or the, um, you know, go through, go through um, either Panama or Nicaragua. Um, so now Huntington, uh, college spotter Huntington, was a devoted reader of Scientific American and discovered a new process for blasting through mountains called nitroglycerin. It was brewed up on the site, and it could be poured into little mouth-sized holes and then blasted from a distance. Actually, he first tried to import it uh, in, I think it's 1863 or 64. Uh, he bring, gets it in this large box. It's shipped. It arrives in San Francisco. It gets kind of lost, and it starts to leak. Uh, and then someone, a couple people can't figure out what it is. It's, it's, all, it's marked fragile. Uh, and so somebody gets a hammer. Somebody else gets a crowbar. They start to open the box, and they blow themselves up and four city blocks uh, around them in San Francisco. Uh, so after that, you can't ship uh, nitroglycerin anymore. And so they, they basically brew it up uh, on the site, the Central Pacific uh, Railroad. Um, a coast-to-coast -coast railroad uh, system would demonstrate to leaders in Europe that this civil war um, was, that this civil war was only a minor setback and that the nation was in the process of bridging all its chasms, that there was a territorial integrity to the United States. We think of that as inevitable now, but many Europeans thought that the U.S. was too big to be a practical size for a nation. A coast-to-coast -coast railway made the nation look unified. Now, in the middle of a civil war, the biggest problem in building Western railroads, of course, would be getting labor. And so here, the wartime mobilization makes possible some important changes that reshape the nation. Okay, thanks. During the war, Congress makes it possible for companies to establish labor contracts that will pull workers in from far away and bind them in multi-year contracts. Before the war, this was taboo. Remember, indentured servitude. 
Uh, but during the war, it appeared like a military necessity, and so the credit ticket system is established in California. So um, just as the Irish were being brought in in large quantities, thinking that they were, many of them believing that they were going to get land in the West only to discover when they arrived at <coughs> Castle Garden that they had, a, they had um, by signing a paper, had already enlisted in the Union Army. Uh, so, and many of these Irish workers, some of the other Irish workers are also used to build the railroads, uh, the Union Pacific, uh, to the West. Um, many Chinese workers were also brought in on three or four year contracts to the Central Pacific. Uh, the appeal was China, which was at the tail end of its own civil war that dwarfed the American Civil War. The American Civil War, which saw about three quarters of a million casualties, the Taiping Rebellion in China killed somewhere between 20 and 40 million. To escape that, workers were willing to do almost anything. They signed contracts in China and then on the shores of San Francisco that bound them to three or four year contracts. Like the Irish, they could not leave their contracts. They were the ones who pushed pushed back into the tunnels that were blasted with nitroglycerin. Hundreds died in cave-ins, falling off mountainsides, crushed in their tents from avalanches, or from inhaling microscopic crystalline dust uh, generated by nitroglycerin blasts. The biggest export from California to China in the first few years um, of the end of the war and the beginning of the post-war period were bones. The bones of Chinese workers who had paid in advance to have their remains turn, return to their home to be buried with their ancestors. So, what, what, what does this suggest about the war? I mean, what I'm trying to talk about is kind of dig a little deeper into, into everyday life. And the, one is that, um, the one image that we have is the Republican is a sort of do-gooder anti-slavery folks. And, and there's something to that, but there's also this sort of, they, it's the specter of slave revolts that is part of why the Confederacy succeeds. And it's really important to understand that that, that fear of slave revolts that's, that's at the center of this. Uh, secondly, of course, the war produced the hamburger uh, and uh, the, the, the tremendously high um, um, uh, heart conditions that would uh, kill so many Union veterans in the 1880s and 90s. And um, thirdly, that California and the West really was a, a kind of the goal of both sides. And the war had a lot to do, uh, not just with winning um, this part of the continent, but with access uh, to the West. Thank you.